Welcome to Office Hours with DPT. This series is run by the Dartmouth Political Times, a non-partisan online publication at Dartmouth College. We aim to host discussions about all things politics and current affairs with Dartmouth professors and community members. I'm your host, Dhruv Uppal, a 22 at Dartmouth College. And I'm your co-host, Madeline Gochi. On today's episode, we look at the economics and politics of the Arab Gulf states, as well as how they have been affected by the pandemic. The date is the 5th of June 2020, and our guest today is Diedrich van der Waller, Associate Professor of Government and Adjunct Associate Professor at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. Thanks for joining us, Professor. My pleasure. Great. Uh, and before we get started with today's topic, I'm sure our listeners would love to learn a little bit about your areas of interest as well as your areas of research, if you could just run us through that. Sure. Uh, my my area of, of interest in terms of research um, has traditionally been uh, the Middle East and North Africa. Um, and in particular, I've been um, really fascinated by um, oil economies uh, and why it is that oil economies seem to have these very special development patterns uh, and also have these political systems that are uh, quite a bit different uh, from what we tend to see uh, throughout the region. So it's really been kind of a, a combination of, of the two. Um, and for that purpose, in order to study them, I um, had a couple of Fulbrights to go to the region and spend some time um, looking at the impact of phosphate money in, in Morocco. Um, and then my second Fulbright was in the Arab Gulf area. Um, and I was particularly interested there um, in why it is that um, within oil economies, um, uh, oil economies themselves have a very hard time um, economically reforming and how that is linked and to how they emerge um, as economies uh, relying primarily on oil um, and natural gas. And our topic of discussion today, as you mentioned, obviously, um, is the oil economies of the Arab, Arab Gulf, Gulf states. So before we get into that, do you think you could define exactly which states we're referring to? Sure. So we're talking essentially about the what are called the Gulf Cooperation Council countries. Um, and those are the six countries um, in the um, Arab Gulf, of which Saudi Arabia is the largest. Uh, then Oman, uh, Bahrain, uh, Qatar, uh, and so all six altogether. Uh, those are really the, the most important ones for our purposes. The other one being uh, that I left out, uh, and I shouldn't really leave out, is uh, the United Arab Emirates, of course. Um, it might be good to start by fleshing out how Arab Gulf states' economies interact with oil. So there's probably a limited understanding among the general public of the importance of the commodity beyond just its enriching effects um, in the region. Uh, so could you give, could you discuss areas from your research that may provide a unique perspective on oil's relevance in the region? Well, most of uh, these countries, um, you know, really went from, and here is the important point, really from the point when they were created, um, have relied very heavily um, on inco- income from oil um, or natural gas. Um, and that has been, uh, that has dominated uh, their economies uh, until today. Um, And as a result of that, uh, because of these large, very large inflows of money, um, these economies um, have normally been able to simply, or the governments in these economies have normally been able to just simply spend a a lot of money and didn't need, if you think of a normal economy, how normal economies develop uh, and all kinds of uh, uh, institutions that states create to make economies work. uh, And these range from all the way from what are called regulatory institutions to extractive institutions, you know, the, the need to get taxes in, in the regular economies and so on. When you think about it, um, states in the Arab Gulf um, have never really needed to develop those kinds of economies. 
uh, and these kinds of institutions. And so as a result, what you saw um, were states that were primarily set up um, to spend money. I, I call these distributive state. That was the primary purpose um, of the state. And my argument um, has been, or the argument in, in, the, in the literature in general on, on oil states is that um, that really skews the way that these countries develop um, so that um, they have large, uh, a large amount of mechanisms to distribute money, to give out money, uh, but they have very little kind of resilience uh, whenever there is an economic crisis or so on because they simply don't have the instruments, the institutions um, to deal with um, economic crises, you know, when, when the income suddenly lowers, which inevitably um, happens in oil economies anyway. And so that was really why uh, I was particularly interested in these because these are such um, unique economies. Um, and the other part was um, that for a very long time, um, these economies, in part because they were making so much money, they didn't have to worry too much about efficiency. They didn't have to worry too much about uh, their population and any kind of backlash from their population because these has usually been um, highly authoritarian uh, regimes. Um, and so uh, what really fascinated me was that um, even where, when, economic difficult, when there were economic difficulties in some of these countries, for example, when the price of oil dropped very precipitously, um, as we've just seen you know, last month, um, that for some reason, these governments still did not reform uh, their economies. And so my question was, why, why is that? I mean, it's obviously very easy to keep doling out money, to give, keep giving money, to avoid any kind of, of reforms. Uh, but I always wonder whether there was more than just a political will, um, whether or not these countries were really institutionally, uh, in a more technical sense, um, ill-equipped to really deal um, with any changes in their economy. And so that was the focus of, of my, my research, essentially. And Professor, you said that these countries basically had the ability to spend, I guess, more so than other countries would, simply because of that massive amount of oil income. Um, is there anything in particular that these countries were spending on, maybe infrastructure projects, or what exactly was this, was this exorbitant spending going towards? Great question. And the answer is that, uh, first of all, a lot of money never really made it to the citizens of these countries. A lot of money was kind of kept at the top. Uh, you have to realize that um, all six of these countries um, in the Arab Gulf are, are monarchies. This is really the region in the world that still has the only real uh, functioning monarchies um, in place. These are very, very powerful families. And every single one of the countries that we're talking about, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, Qatar, etc., um, they all have essentially these royal families um, still in power. So a lot of money um, stayed at the level um, of these uh, royal families. Um, a lot of the money was simply um, wasted, uh, you know, not, not, not plowed into very productive economic activities at home, um, if at all. Uh, but a huge amount of money um, actually was also um, wasted on military expenditures. These countries, uh, the Arab Gulf countries, have traditionally had among some of the highest outlays in the world um, for military um, expenditures that, that really continued uh, until today. Uh, and that continued as well throughout any economic crises um, that these countries have had. So uh, in part this was uh, because uh, one of the problems that I hinted at, that there really was no regulation in their economies. In our economies in the West, we have these checks and balances uh, that determine how money gets spent, how much gets taxed, how much of taxation money gets pulled into a certain direction, et cetera, et cetera. Um, none of that um, really um, happened in the Arab Gulf countries. Um, the, the, the budget procedures are, are rather opaque. 
Um, in many ways, we still don't have very clear ideas um, of what these governments make, how that money is spent, uh, and certainly there was no input, there was no political process that could in any way check it. So what we had were really what I would call highly wasteful um, economies with, um, you know, let's say 30, 40, 50 years after um, they started uh, putting oil on the international market, uh, from a comparative point of view, actually very little to show um, for all of the money that they've, that they've made. Um, you mentioned that kind of the difficulties and the consequences of these Arab states' economies' reliance um, on oil. Can you contextualize the impact of the current crisis uh, when oil futures went negative earlier this year on the economies of these Arab Gulf states? Sure. And there, there were really, it was really a combination of things, actually. It was, first of all, uh, certainly uh, the, the, the implosion of, of oil prices, which, as you said, was negative. Um, at one point last month. Um, but it was really, on the other hand, also really married to the, the COVID-19 crisis. And it was really the combination of the both um, that now countries um, have to face. But obviously, to, to go back, first of all, to uh, the collapse of oil prices, um, it, uh, if you know, for example, that Saudi Arabia roughly needs to make uh, $80 a barrel to break even, that's the break-even point for Saudi oil, uh, and you know they were getting $13, $14, uh, you can immediately see what that does to, to a budget. And so uh, most of the countries in the Arab world, but particularly Saudi Arabia, um, have been in current deficit uh, uh, crises now for, for a couple of years, um, and that will continue. But it has all kinds of you know, major impacts uh, really down, uh, downstream from, from that as well. Um, for example, a lot of these countries have invested a lot of their money in what are called um, sovereign wealth funds. I shouldn't say a lot of money. Um, actually not that much compared to the money that they've made. But the sovereign wealth funds have kind of emerged as, let's call them piggy banks, so to speak, savings accounts uh, for these governments. Um, and these have traditionally been managed in a, in a certain fashion. Uh, and because of the downturn now um, of uh, money coming flowing into um, these countries, um, these, the way that these sovereign wealth funds, for example, um, have been managed uh, will need to, to be changed. So uh, the, the, the impact um, really has had a number of ripple effects um, uh, throughout uh, the economy uh, of these countries. And, and now, of course, um, a lot of the um, efforts that they've made, the, the previous efforts to divert, uh, for example, the diversification of their economies um, is really in jeopardy. Uh, a lot of the projects that uh, they want to spend money on, for example, one major project in Saudi Arabia was a kind of a futuristic city that they wanted to create called Niyum. Uh, which uh, was scheduled to cost $500 billion. Um, a lot of these uh, you know, projects are now um, obviously on hold or, or being questioned, but the political um, uh, kind of implication is important here as well. Um, and that is that there has been kind of increasingly um, unease uh, with uh, the way how these economies um, are being handled. And that is longstanding, but because of the crisis and because of the Corona, cri uh, corona 19 crisis, um, a lot of these uh, problems that have risen to the surface uh, a bit more. Uh, and again, particularly in, in Saudi Arabia, um, for example, um, Saudi Arabia, where you know, the two holy cities of Mecca and Medina are, um, are traditionally uh, a major attraction for all Muslims, of course. Um, that has come to a halt. So even there, um, there's been an enormous amount of uh, loss of money, uh, and perhaps as well kind of um, a bit of a loss of standing of, of the position that Saudi Arabia um, has had um, in the Muslim world. So 
uh, what, what started off as primarily an economic crisis, and, and that is the, the case always um, in oil economies, what starts off at perhaps small, in this case, perhaps a, a bit larger, um, economic crisis always end up uh, being a um, major uh, political crisis, crises of legitimacy for local regimes, basically. I'd like to talk about the political implications of the crisis in a while, and I think we'll move on to Saudi Arabia as a case study. But before that, I'd like to go back to something you said about um, sovereign wealth funds and how they're managed. Um, what exactly is going wrong with these funds? Who's managing them? And is there any like strategic reason why, why these investments are failing? Uh, well, the investments are not actually failing at, at sovereign wealth funds. Um, and sovereign wealth funds have, have a number of characteristics, and they're managed in all kinds of, of different ways. Um, in, in general, um, you know, usually what happens at sovereign wealth funds, and, and there are a couple of exceptions, um, is that these are managed by white-collar expatriate labor. Um, so the expertise is very good. They're usually managed in, in quite good uh, fashion. Um, but the problem, uh, or one of the issues now, um, is that traditionally, except for some smaller ones, there's one fund in uh, Abu Dhabi, for example, called Mubadala, that is a little more aggressive, uh, more oriented toward venture capital, et cetera, um, if I can you know, summarize it very quickly. But some of the other ones, including the big ones like the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority and so on, have usually been managed um, relatively conservatively, uh, and they have been managed you know, with an eye of providing a steady income for future generations, um, in this case, in, in the United Arab Emirates. Um, and a lot of um, kind of observers now, and, and even people inside the country, um, are starting to, uh, to wonder whether particularly in this crisis, which is quite severe, um, a lot of that money um, actually shouldn't be started to, to be used, uh, you know, for uh, kind of all kinds of aid to, to citizens and so on uh, within the country. In other words, kind of turn around uh, the orientation, the, the investment orientation, and that a lot of these um, sovereign wealth funds uh, have had. Um, and, you know, that's a very, very difficult um, situation. There is something called uh, inter intergenerational equity, um, and that means that sovereign wealth funds are usually kind of managed with a very long term uh, view in mind, you know, for the next generation. Um, and that the argument is that you shouldn't be spending um, a lot of that money for the current generation because future generations then will be disadvantaged. So that's kind of where um, a lot of the debate is um, surrounding um, these um, uh, sovereign wealth funds. But in general, they, they have been managed uh, somewhat conservatively, but, but actually reasonably well. Transitioning to Saudi Arabia, for just a little background, what has uh, the economic and political reforms in Saudi Arabia looked like since Prince Salman came into power? The, the, so first of all, uh, kind of by means of, of background, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, which of course is utterly reliant uh, on the income from oil and is, is the biggest producer or, or used to be traditionally the biggest producer in the world, um, you know, has traditionally uh, obviously relied primarily on this income, but started to realize, and, and this really goes back uh, roughly about 20 years ago or so, um, that in order to really um, kind of guarantee an income into the future, because you have to realize, of course, that uh, oil will run out eventually. Now, we don't know how long that will take in, in Saudi Arabia. There's all kinds of uh, figures on this. But let's say even if, if Saudi Arabian oil lasts for another, let's say, 80 years or so, then that still means that, uh, you know, within three generations or so, four generations maximum, um, Saudi Arabia will, uh, will be um, out of oil. And so uh, roughly about 20 years ago, uh, although some people dated back a little bit earlier even to 
um, uh, King Faisal in, in the 1970s, Saudi Arabia, to make a long story short, um, realized um, that it needed to move away from relying simply um, on the uh, income from oil. Uh, and one way, of course, that you can do that is by trying to diversify um, your um, economy. Um, and so uh, the first attempt to do that was in the 1970s. Uh, but uh, again, because there was so much money, as I mentioned earlier on, there were very few concerns really about um, efficiency in these economies. Um, and so it wasn't really until, uh, let's say, roughly 2008, 2009, uh, when the global uh, cri financial crisis emerged, that Saudi Arabia for the first time really very seriously started to look um, at economic reform. Um, and that was kind of, uh, you know, kind of held, you know, on the books, so to speak, um, until uh, Mohammed bin Salman uh, came uh, on the scene. Uh, and, and very clearly from the beginning, you know, he's a, a much younger uh, man than, uh, you know, than his elders, you know, kind of, uh, uh, he's from the next generation. Um, and it was very clear that he really um, was uh, very concerned uh, about the direction that the Soviet, sorry, that the, uh, the Saudi economy was taken, uh, but also what, what the impacts of it were on, on, on society. Um, and so uh, Mohammed bin Salman, saw a society, a country in which, uh, you know, a lot of the, the older generation were really quite out of touch, both what was happening within the economy uh, and within society at large. Um, and so uh, he married, in a sense, economic reform to his social uh, goals. Um, he wanted to reform the economy in a way um, that would also benefit uh, society to a larger extent. He wanted to open up um, society to some extent. And so he announced um, a, a very, a set of very, very, very ambitious plans, um, originally a, a Vision 2020, that then later on became uh, Vision 2030. Um, and Vision 2030 is really an enormous blueprint um, to reform uh, that oil-based economy um, in Saudi Arabia toward a more diversified economy, uh, an economy that would be able to employ um, a lot more uh, Saudi citizens, because remember, in an oil economy, very few citizens are actually needed to run your economy. Um, and so, um, although there were economic purposes to 2030, um, it also um, certainly had, you know, a very, very distinct um, social uh, purpose to it. And as part of um, that plan, um, the, there was also a, a kind of an aspect, again, that kind of resonates with um, old style, what I would, would call old style uh, Saudi politics. Um, and that is, you know, that very glamorous city um, that Mohammed bin Salman called Niyum uh, wants to create in, in a corner um, of the kingdom, which, as I said, would cost roughly um, $500 billion, um, and which uh, perhaps as a result of what is happening now and the collapse of oil prices uh, will be dramatically be curtailed. Uh, but so again, the way to think about economic reform, uh, and certainly under Mohammed bin Salman, is that, uh, and, and as, as he realized perfectly well also, um, is that economic reform in these economies, because of the way they are structured, inevitably implies some kind of political reform. Um, and now the interesting thing um, in terms of Mohammed bin Salman is that he has done what lots of authoritarian rulers tend to do. They, they, they embark upon economic reforms and they hope that they won't have to embark on those political reforms, uh, you know, provide more information and so on, uh, you know, that, or that is necessary to make more open economies run. And so at the same time that we've seen the opening up 
um, of uh, Saudi society. Women can drive, for example. They don't need the guard, their guardians under certain circumstances and so on. At the same time that we've seen this, you know, you, you can now listen to music in Saudi Arabia, you can go to a concert, you can go to a movie theater, all of which, you know, didn't exist before Mohammed bin Salman came to power. Um, but on the other hand, uh, yes, you know, there is all this kind of positive news to report. But on the other hand, um, he's also done all of that in a very highly authoritarian fashion. Uh, and as a matter of fact, um, he's really tightened up uh, the, the hold that the Saudi state has uh, in many ways over its citizens. So the economic reforms are important. Uh, what the impact will be um, on Saudi society is really still uh, out there. We, we still don't know. Uh, but again, you can see, you know, that close link between um, economic reform uh, and political reform and why uh, Mohammed bin Salman is really a very, very interesting figure um, for all the good and bad that he's done so far, but a, a very important figure um, in Saudi Arabia, uh, because if he is successful, and, and I think like most people, I'm quite skeptical that he will be very successful uh, in part of the way that the economy is shaped, in part of the way that society is shaped, but even if he's only partially successful, um, his reforms would have a major impact uh, within the region and you know you have to realize Saudi Arabia in many ways is always kind of a, a tone setter in the region as well. So whichever way Saudi Arabia will go and particularly since it, it was so conservative if Saudi Arabia were to open up that would send a, a kind of a, a signal um, certainly um, throughout the region. So hence uh, you know the reforms uh, of Mohammed bin Salman are for a number of reasons um, really important. You mentioned diversification a few times. Um, briefly, could I ask which sectors exactly, um, for example, Saudi Arabia is trying to branch into? Well, they're trying to, to do a number of things. Um, first of all, they are trying to uh, establish some kind of manufacturing base um, in the country. Uh, they're trying to uh, create a more into, uh, invest more into real estate. But they're also, for example, looking at something that traditionally really was off the books in Saudi Arabia, um, and that is uh, tourism. And of course, tourism traditionally was not allowed because it brings in tourists and, you know, probably alcohol, et cetera, et cetera, all of which is uh, not acceptable to, to Islam. Um, and uh, of course, Saudi Arabia, again, being very, very conservative, having had traditionally this uh, religious police that has, uh, you know, a, a large amount of power in the country. Um, but uh, so in principle, they're trying to diversify um, into tourism, what is called both Islamic tourism, which means tourism uh, surrounded uh, the, the pilgrimage in, into Mecca um, and Medina, uh, but also some, uh, some non-Islamic tourism, for which, of course, places like uh, Neum and then some other areas that they would create in Saudi Arabia um, would be um, very important. Um, so an important initiative, and again, whether or not it, it can succeed, um, is really still up uh, for us to see in the future. Uh, and you talk a lot about these reforms, both economic um, and political, that have been going on in Saudi Arabia. Um, so how has the pandemic and the recent collapse of oil prices um, affected these reforms? Do you see it kind of being derailed um, for a long time? Or do you believe that countries like Saudi Arabia will be able to bounce back and continue these kind of large visions that they have for the diversification of their economy? Yeah. Well, uh, so far, uh, particularly Saudi Arabia, I think at this point has already, um, just to stimulate the economy, has already pumped roughly about $130 billion in, into the economy. Uh, and, and certainly there is, you know, a short-term crisis here. Uh, but remember also what, what I said before, um, that the crisis in Saudi Arabia in terms of its economy is, you know, it really goes far back. 
and, and really dates to, uh, to its inability to, to really reform. Um, but there are a large number um, of other um, issues as well. Um, the, the international reserves of Saudi Arabia, for example, um, have declined uh, quite dramatically. Um, and its ability to, to really come up uh, with the money for these reforms. And, and I would argue, for example, that uh, much of the, uh, the calling for diversification uh, will probably be uh, thrown out the window, for, at least for now. Uh, and so your question about kind of short-term versus long-term is, is a very good one. Uh, my personal uh, understanding is that we'll probably in the short run that we'll see quite a bit of um, austerity in, in Saudi Arabia, probably for the next year, 18 months or so. Uh, but then, then gradually, and again, depending also what happens to the oil price, of course, um, if the oil price remains very low, then that period of austerity could be extended for a much longer period of time. It also depends on the actual oil market. Um, but I think it's also fair to say um, that in the long run, um, that the kind of leeway that Saudi rulers had in terms of running their economy, uh, kind of, you know, without uh, being contested, without any checks and balances uh, and so on, will, um, will increasingly be much more difficult. And, and one example, one very good example that we have here um, is that um, the, the largest uh, company in Saudi Arabia, as a matter of fact, one of the largest companies in terms of capitalization in the world, um, is Aramco, uh, you know, which is a national oil company. Um, and uh, as, as one of the means to raise money um, for these reform efforts, um, Mohammed bin Salman uh, wanted to have an initial public offering um, in which they were going to give up 5% of Aramco you know, to investors. Um, and it was very interesting how the reaction worldwide was to that offer, because in principle, um, if uh, you know, an oil company uh, makes uh, goes toward an IPO, particularly one as well structured as, as Aramco was, that, you know, this would immediately draw enormous interest and enormous investment. Um, and what we saw actually in, in the Saudi case, in the case of Aramco, that was actually the opposite. They had a hard time um, selling it on the international market. And that had, all to, that had to do with a number of technical reasons. Um, they wanted initially to list it on the New York market, for example, on NASDAQ. That proved impossible uh, because NASDAQ uh, asked for all kinds of disclosures which the Saudis weren't willing to, to provide. And so to make a very long story short, what should have been um, kind of a cornerstone um, of an attempt at turning the Saudi uh, economy around, uh, in the end proved to be quite the opposite. Uh, the people that invested um, in Aramco and uh, in, in that IPO turned out to be overwhelmingly Saudis and overwhelmingly people that the government had to lean on to actually make those kinds of investments. So it shows you a little bit on, on how uh, the, the Saudi economy is being judged uh, globally. Um, and of course, you, if, if you read very carefully that offering of the IPO, uh, you know, one of the sentences that was included in, in that offering said um, that in the end, uh, you know, the, uh, the management of, uh, uh, of Aramco would continue to reflect uh, the interests of the government of Saudi Arabia. And so again, you know, you can see why that proved less than attractive for international investors. But again, in a larger sense as well, um, it also uh, makes you think of um, how the Saudi economy is being viewed by international investors. So the bottom line is um, that in its reforms, undoubtedly, you know, more money will be coming in and so on, but it will never again be those kind of heady years, you know, when oil was over $100 a barrel and Saudi Arabia could produce 10 million barrels a day. I think those days are probably gone um, forever. 
Um, so what that means for Saudi Arabia, I think in the medium and, and long term, um, is um, really nearly an adjustment to what are changing global, global realities. Professor van der Waller, thanks so much for joining us. That was very informative. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, please listen next week.